Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Hey, what's up, guys? It's your favorite fedora-wearing apologist, Evan Minton. And today I'm going to be talking about Genesis 1 again. And I'm going to be responding to William Lane Craig's critique of the Cosmic Temple view of Genesis 1 that he he gave this critique in two different videos in his uh, Defenders class. Uh, there are two YouTube videos. There's also... Uh, audio files that you can download, and uh, transcripts on the Reasonable Faith website. And so I'm going to be... He disagrees with the Cosmic Temple view of Genesis 1, and in his Defenders class, he he says... He gives all these... He gives uh, several objections to why he doesn't adopt it. And so in this podcast, and probably the next, it just depends on when I get done because, you know, if I hit the one-hour mark, uh, I'm going to be responding to those criticisms because I don't think they're very good. I don't think they refute the the Cosmic Temple view of Genesis 1. Now, William Lane Craig is my number one all-time favorite Christian philosopher and apologist. He is the one Christian apologist whose views most closely align with my own. We both agree that the Kalam cosmological argument is a good argument. Uh, We both agree that the cosmic fine-tuning argument is a good argument. Uh, We both use the same same formulation of the moral argument. We both use the modal ontological argument that was formulated by the Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga. And even the methodology of how we get to the the historicity of the resurrection of, of Jesus. We both use the minimal facts method. Uh, we're both Arminians, we're both Molinists, and I think he has the perfect response to the criticism that the Incarnation is incoherent, uh, that he puts forth in his book, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. I scarcely find myself uttering the words, William Lane Craig is wrong. Craig has had the biggest, I mean, we, we just we just agree on almost everything, but not not literally everything, as you'll see in this pod, as you'll hear in this podcast episode. Craig has had the biggest influence on the intellectual role of my walk with Christ, and I was and am, I was am and continue to be blessed by his books, podcasts, and Q and A articles. With all of that said, there are a few areas where I think Craig has missed the mark, and interpreting Genesis one is one of those areas. Now, I have written a blog post on CerebralFaith.net titled "The Cosmic Temple View of Genesis One," and you can read that by I'll I'll put it in the show notes. You can click on the link and you can go read that blog post. And I've also in the ver- in the previous episode of this podcast, I gave a a defense of the cause of, of this interpretation of Genesis one. Uh, this interpretation has been popularized by Christian thinkers like John Walton, Old Testament professor at Wheaton College. In fact, I think Walton is probably the biggest 
reason why this view is gaining traction. It's defended in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, Ancient Cosmology and the Origins Debate, published by IVP Academic, InterVarsity Press. It's defended in the first several chapters of his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, Genesis 2-3 to in the Human Origins Debate. He, um, it is also talked about uh, very briefly in his book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. I had Walton on this this podcast several weeks ago, and I interviewed him about that book. He also talks about it in his uh, Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary book on Genesis, uh, the so he he talks about it in a lot of places, uh, and he has an academic book called Genesis One as Ancient Cosmology. So he's really got the the ball rolling, uh, and th- he's he's the one I uh, he's the first person that I I heard about this interpretation from. So let's let's get started. I have the timestamps of William Lane Craig's video. Uh, in a WordPad document here, so I don't have to go searching around for the specific points. I'm going to try to steel man his arguments, because the first video is 40 40 minutes long. I'm not going to play the whole thing, and I'm not going to critique every single sentence he says. I'm just going to hit the highlights, the big points. So I've got several timestamps here for how long I'm going to play the clips from his video and what I'm going to say in response. So, let's get started. Today we want to continue our discussion of John Walton's functional interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. We ended last time by saying that Walton has an enormous burden of proof with regard to justifying his interpretation. He needs to show that Genesis 1 involves only functional creation and not also the creation of material objects at the same time. Um, Otherwise, his view will reduce to the typical literal interpretation of Genesis 1, that God actually brings into being over the course of six 24-hour days the plants, the animals, the dry land, the uh, astral bodies, and so forth. Walton needs to show that all God does during these six days is to assign functions to material objects. Well, can't... Okay, so the one of the biggest hang-ups Craig seems to have with Walton throughout his critiques is his use of the creation verbs bara and asa, the Hebrew words translated create and made respectively. A lot of Old Testament scholars and theologians read bara and asa as referring to material manufacturing in Genesis 1. But, as Professor Walton points out in his books, and as I pointed out in my blog post, The Cosmic Temple View of Genesis 1, and in the previous podcast episode, there are many areas where bara, slash create, and asa, slash made, cannot possibly refer to material manufacturing and are primarily functionally oriented. For example, Psalm chapter 89 verse 12 says, the north and the south you have 
created them. You broad them. Tabor and Hermon shout for joy at your name. North and south are directions. Directions are not material. Uh, they're not material objects. Now, of course, the places to which north and south are materially existing things, but the directions of these material objects are not themselves material. So here is one of many areas, many examples where bara is used of non-material things. God created north and south. He created, he created them, and they're not physical objects. They're not material objects. North and south are not material objects, and yet Psalm 89.12 says God barad them. Another example is in Psalm 51. Most people are aware of Psalm 51. It's King David's song of repentance after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had arranged for the death of Uriah the Hittite. In verse 10 of this psalm, David prays, quote, Create, bara, in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, bara, in me a clean heart. Psalm 51.10 Now, is David asking God to physically manufacture a new blood-pumping organ for David? No, of course not. And no one would interpret David's plea as requesting that God materially manufacture a new blood-pumping organ. Rather, in Psalm 51.10, David is asking God to give him a, a new moral character, to give him the kind of moral character that is more inclined to do good instead of evil. In other words, David is asking God to change him. David is basically asking, make me a better person reorient my character and my desires, create a new function, reorient me. So again, the Hebrew word bara, th th this is a second example of how the bara is being used to describe a process that God brings about, and it, it's bringing about order and function rather than the manufacture of new material. Nothing, when God creates a new heart in David, nothing material is made. Nothing in the material world, there's, there's no new collection of atoms that come into being. But, that isn't to say that nothing happened. God, re, what God did was reorient David's moral character. That's a new function. That's a new, that's order, bringing order to David's heart. That's what it means to create a new heart. It is bringing order and function rather than ma manufacture of new material. A third example is in Psalm, I mean, not Psalm, Isaiah chapter 65, verses 7 to 8. No. Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 18. Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 18. God says, for behold, I create, bara, new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create, bara, Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Isaiah chapter 65 verses 17 to 18 is clearly referring to functional creation, not material creation. 
at least in the latter part of the verse. When it says he creates a new heaven and a new earth, that could be material creation. But in the part about Jerusalem, that's not material creation. That's a function. Jeru he didn't, God didn't have to create poof. He didn't have to poof into being the buildings and the places that we call Jerusalem in the day of Isaiah. Jerusalem existed at the time that Isaiah was preaching. What's going on here? God created Jerusalem for rejoicing and for the gladness of Jerusalem's citizens. That's function. God created Jerusalem with a purpose, with a function. So again, we have a third example of bara being used in a functional sense. Many other examples of bara not being used to refer to physical manufacturing could be cited. For example, Isaiah 57:19 says, "Creating the praise of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near," says the Lord, "and I will heal him." Praise is not material. It involves the material, sure, you know, vocal cords and sound waves. Uh, but praise itself is, um, it's not a, it's a non-physical thing. Yeah, I mean, it involves the material, it involves vocal cords, it involves sound waves. But praise itself is not material. Not to mention that the ancient Israelites wouldn't have been thinking in terms of sound waves any, anyway. They didn't, they didn't know that, that sound was a physical thing, just as they didn't know that light was a physical thing. More on that in a little bit. Uh, that, that's a fourth example. A fifth example, Isaiah 45.7. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all of these things. While we know that physical that, that light is physical the ancients did not the ancients did not know of photons they did not believe that light was physical so when god says that he creates light they wouldn't have interpreted that as the uh, as referring to the creation of anything material they didn't know about photons and particles and waves and general relativity and all that stuff all the physics we know I mean, yeah, we think of light, and we know, oh yeah, that's, that's, you know, photons. But they didn't know that. And certainly, they didn't believe darkness was a material thing. We don't believe darkness is a material thing. Darkness is the absence of light. It's not a material thing. And yet, the text says that God creates darkness. He creates light. Not a material thing, according to ancient Near Eastern thinking. And he creates darkness as well. Not a material thing, according to ancient Near Eastern thinking or modern thinking. And this verse also says that God creates disaster. Disaster is not a material thing. Sure, disaster always involves material. For example, collapsing buildings, injured people, uh, so on and so forth. Hurricane winds tornadoes, these are all material things and so on. But disaster itself is not material. Consider, for example, um, a hurricane on Earth is considered disastrous, but hurricanes on Jupiter is no big deal. If no one is suffering or receives any a detriment of any kind, no one considers 
the thing in question to be a disaster. Uh, these are just five examples of bara, that is, the Hebrew word translated as create in Genesis 1, being used elsewhere in the Old Testament. And when they're used elsewhere in the Old Testament, they don't refer to the material manufacturing of anything. Instead, all five of these examples have to do with order, function, and purpose. God baras Jerusalem to be a place of joy. Isaiah 65:18. He purifies David's heart to better obey his will. Psalm 51, 10. Uh, and so on. So, from the Old Testament usage of bara, we can see that it does not have to, it does not have to, have to, have to refer to material creation. Now, that said... There are places in the Old Testament where it does have to mean material creation, and there are also places where it is ambiguous. But seeing that a, a purely functional in, in orientation is possible, open, that, seeing that a purely functional interpretation is possible opens up the possibility that Genesis 1 is not describing material creation. It's about functional creation, functional origins. Now, whether or not Genesis 1 is describing material creation, we'd have to look at how, the, how those words are used in Genesis 1. And we have to be careful to read the text as the original author and audience would have understood it. We, we can't read the text through our modern Western lenses. I explain this in my blog post, Hermeneutics 101, Part 3, Understanding the Cultural Context. I... Explained it in the previous podcast in which I defended the co the functional view of Genesis 1. This is the proper way to interpret any biblical text. And in fact, the, any hermeneutics teacher, any exegesis teacher, will tell you this. They'll tell you, you have to interpret the Bible in its cultural context, the way the original author would have understood it, the way the original audience would have understood it. This is, this is not controversial. All theologians and Bible teachers will tell you this. However, as I said in my, um, in my interview with Daniel Eaton a couple of weeks ago, Bible teachers and and theologians are a little bit inconsistent when this. They'll say, oh yeah, to interpret the Bible according to its cultural context. But they make that exception when it comes to Genesis 1 and anywhere else the Bible talks about the natural world. Yeah, when in Genesis 1, yeah, it's about, it's about material origins and therefore we have to find out how it... Uh, relates to modern science, and and you'll have Hugh Ross saying Genesis one one is the big is uh, the biblical description of the Big Bang, and and the sea life being created on day five is the is, that's a reference to the Cambrian explosion, uh, and so on. And that's just that's just reading modern science into the text. That's not reading the text the way an ancient would. Um, and it's not just old Earth creationists like Hugh Ross that are guilty of that. Ken Ham. Uh, uh, you know, practically all young Earth creationists are guilty of this. They just go in the other way. They try to force fit the they try to force fit science to fit the Bible, whereas old Earth creationists they try to force fit the Bible to be saying the same thing that science says. Uh, but anyway, I mean, we got to interpret the Bible according to its ancient context, as Michael Heiser says. The the context that pr produced the Bible, I mean, um, 
the context of the Bible, it's not modern evangelicalism, it's not the Roman Catholic Church, it's not the Protestant Reformation, it's not even the early church fathers. The context of the Bible the context of the Bible is the context that produced it. Namely, the, I mean, it, it, Moses and, and Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and, all, and all of these biblical authors. That's, that's, that's the context of the Bible, the context that produced it. And as Michael Heiser also often likes to say, we, we need to have the Israelite in our head when we're reading the text. Or as Paul Jordan, my hermeneutics teacher at Five Point Church, said, uh, we need to step into the sandals of the ancient author. And when you look at Genesis 1 through the eyes of an ancient, you can see that they would not have understood several of the days to have God, to have involved God physically making anything. Ancient Israelites would not have understood light and darkness on day one, nor the sun, moon, and stars on day four to be material objects. We recognize them as material objects. We know that the sun is a gigantic burning ball of gas 93 million light years, I mean, not light years, miles away. If it's 93 million light years away, this, the Earth would be awfully cold. It's, it's miles, 93 million miles away. Uh, we know that the moon is a huge rock 239,000 miles from Earth. We know that the stars are burning balls of gas like our sun. They're just a lot farther away than the sun. We know all this stuff. We have 400 years of scientific investigation uh, that informs us of these things. But the ancients, they, they didn't have that. They didn't know that. They didn't know this stuff. The ancients considered the sun, moon, and stars to be what the text says they are lights. And they did not consider light to be physical. They didn't know about waves and photons. So if William Lane Craig insists on Genesis 1 being a material view of origins as well as a functional view, he's faced with a problem. He has to admit that God didn't actually make anything on days 1 and 4. He has to either admit that God didn't make anything on days 1 and 4, which is odd for a creation account. He has to do that, or he has to interpret the celestial bodies the way that modern science understands it. But that second alternative is reading modern concepts into an ancient text. That's concordism. Concordism is eisegesis, reading something into the text that's not there that the original author would not have, have understood. So, Craig's got a dilemma here. He's, he's got a dilemma, and he's going, to, if, if, he's going to have to fall on one horn or the other. He, if he insists on, that is to say, if he insists on Genesis 1 being an account of material creation, he's either got to say God didn't make anything on days 1 and 4, or he's going to have to resort to concordist hermeneutics. And the irony here is that Craig himself disavows concordism. He himself says we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't be scanning the text and seeing how we can relate it to modern science. He himself says that's a no-no. But, you know, what's he going to do? Is he going to, is he going to say that God didn't make anything on days 1 and 4, even though this is a, a creation account? 
So, it's got to fall on one horn or the other. Now, I don't have the time to uh, do a thorough look at the the chapter of Genesis here, but I, as like I said, I do go into a defense of the Cosmic Temple Inauguration View in my blog post. The it's just called the Cosmic Temple Inauguration View of Genesis One. You can find it on cerebralfaith.net. Go to the blog section. Go to the subsection called Creation and Evolution, and then go to the sub subsection called uh, Interpreting Genesis One. Or you can just go to the search engine and type in the Cosmic Temple view or Genesis 1. You'll find it. And like, a, or, and I'm giving you this just in case I'm forgetful and I forget to put it in the show notes. I plan on putting the link to the blog post in the show notes, but I might forget. So I'm, ju- I'm telling you this just in case. Um, and I also, I also uh, look at the Genesis text in depth in my previous podcast episode, which was an hour and a half long. So, anyway, uh, and also, hey, get John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. It is a fantastic read. Fantastic. Uh, and The Lost World of Adam and Eve, and The Lost World of the Flood, Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament. John Walton has, beca- has become my favorite Old Testament. Just as William Lane Craig is my favorite Christian philosopher, John Walton is my favorite Old Testament scholar. You know, uh, you know, okay, maybe, maybe Michael Heiser would be like, you know, I, I, Walton and Heiser are kind of right up there, being my favorite Old Testament scholars. Uh, anyway, uh, but that functional ontology is uh, what the text is focused on. It's powerfully evident by the ancient Near Eastern creation myths, as well as the text of the Bible. Now, in the clip that. I played from Craig's video. Craig objects that Walton needs to show that it's only functional. Only only functional is present in the text, rather than both material and functional. So, like the little girl in that meme, we all know what, you know, if you're a, if, if you're younger than 40, you know what I'm talking about. The, girl, the little girl in the meme that says, why not both? Uh, John Walton explicitly admits in his books that theoretically it could be both. It could be both material and functional. Just as if uh, a man says, I create, I create a safe environment for my family. When a man says, I create a safe environment for my family, theoretically that could mean that he's a carpenter and he built the physical house that he and his family live in, in addition to meaning that he makes sure... Uh, the doors and windows are locked at night. The cabinets are stocked with food, and they have heat and air conditioning for the appropriate seasons, etc. However, while we have good reason to believe that functional orientation is the focus of God's creative activity in Genesis 1, we have no reason to believe that material orientation is in focus. And in fact, as I'll say later, we actually have reason to believe that that's not the case. The latter, but uh, Walton says in the Lost World of Genesis one that ma- that material or material orientation has to be demonstrated. Walton argues that if the ancients understood existence to be defined in terms of functions, and they did, and if day after day in G- the Genesis one creation account we we find that it concerns functions, 
and it does, then the burden of proof is on the one who insists that there is still a material element alongside the functional. So, it is Craig who bears the burden of proof, not me or John Walton. So, let's now go to Craig's second objection. Can he sustain this burden of proof? Well, let's first look at ancient Near Eastern cosmology. Walton claims that when we look at ancient Near Eastern uh, creation myths, we find, and I quote, that people in the ancient world believed that something existed not by virtue of its material properties, but by virtue of its having a function in an ordered system. But does the evidence support this claim? Well, I think that the answer is clearly no. Walton points out, and I quote, that nearly all the creation accounts of the ancient world start their story uh, with no operational system in place. Egyptian texts talk about a singularity, nothing having yet been separated out. All is inert and undifferentiated, end quote. Creation often begins with the primeval waters out of which dry land or gods emerge. You'll recall that when we discussed creatio ex nihilo, we saw that the typical form of these ancient creation myths was when blank was not yet, then blank. Uh, and this is um, the type of uh, form that Walton identifies in the uh, myth of the founding of the Babylonian city of Eridu. This is what this ancient text says. No holy house, no house of the gods had been built in a pure place. No reed had come forth. No tree had been created. No brick had been laid. No brick mold had been created. No house had been built. No city had been created. Nippur, a Babylonian city, had not been built. Ekur had not been created. Eruk had not been built. Iana had not been created. The depths had not been built. Eridu had not been created. No holy house, no house of the gods, no dwelling for them had been created. All the world was sea. The spring in the midst of the sea was only a channel. Then Eridu was built. Esagila was created. Now, this typical form of ancient creation myths is what you find in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. Genesis 2, 5 to 7. When no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, then the Lord God created man. Now, the descriptions of the primordial world in pagan myths were therefore not the descriptions of material objects um, according to which plants and animals and buildings and people all existed, but merely lacked a function. Rather, they are descriptions of a state in which distinct material objects of these sorts do not exist at all. None of them 
existed at that time. This is especially evident in the Egyptian myths mentioned by Walton. Okay, so Dr. Craig here is assuming that creation is a material activity, that existence is material. So that when the Babylonian founding of Eridu says that no house had been built, no reed had come forth, and so on, it is saying that these things were materially absent. But notice that this creation myth, in this creation myth, there is already material present, namely the seas. It says, all the world was sea. That's what the text says. When it says, this had not been built, this had not been created, no holy house, no reed, no brick, no brick mold, no house, etc., 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 blah, blah, blah. Then it says, all the world was sea. Where did the sea come from? The text doesn't say. The sea is already there when the activity of creation begins. If this were a material account, as Craig presupposes, shouldn't we expect it to begin with no material? Yes. Since it does begin with material, that indicates that maybe, just maybe, material is not the focus of the account. In ancient Near Eastern thinking, the sea was a symbol of chaos. It was a world of non-order. It was just a crazy, crazy place where all sorts of crazy monsters lived and just, you know, the sea was was just some... It was, they were really terrified of, of the sea. And you can see this in their texts. For example... For example, in Enuma Elish, the symbol of chaos is the goddess Tiamat. Some people, some scholars say Tiamat. Some other scholars say Tiamat. I really don't know who is correct in their pronunciation. Uh, but uh, in, in Enuma Elish, the symbol of chaos is the goddess Tiamat, who, and, and, and Tiamat personifies the sea. As Old Testament scholar Michael Heiser wrote, Quote, in the ancient world, the original primordial chaotic conditions of creation are often portrayed as a monstrous dragon. This is reflected in stories from ancient Babylon and Israel's closest neighbor, Ugarit, ancient Syria, just north of Israel. In the literature of ancient Ugarit, the god Baal battles Yam, who is portrayed as a chaotic, churning sea, and a terrifying sea dragon named Tanun or Litanu. These terms are equivalent to the Hebrew words in Psalm chapter 74, verses 13 to 14. You divided the sea, Yam, by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters, Taninim, on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan, Liwatan. End quote. And the quote I am getting that from... Uh, this comes from Michael Heiser's artic- online article, Slaying the Sea Monster of Psalm 74, uh, in, on Bible, in Bible Study Magazine on Crosswalk.com. And so, the as you can see, it symbolized chaos, non-order. It symbolized... 
symbolize chaos, non-order, uh, that you know, craziness. Uh, something that has to be tamed. Something that has to. I mean, so what we can infer from this, from this uh, ancient Near Eastern mindset, is that okay? Well, we already have material present, the sea, and the state of the world is non-orderly, non-functional, chaotic. So, if the if material is already present and it's just all you have, all the world is sea, all the world is sea. What you can basically translate that as, as say, is as saying all the world was chaos, all the world was non-ordered, all the world was non-functional. So, what would creation be? It would be the activity of giving functions to that which have no function. And we see the exact same thing in Genesis 1. As I pointed out in my blog post, The Cosmic Temple Inauguration View of Genesis 1, and in last week's podcast episode, uh, as I, um, we have very good textual reasons to believe that Genesis 1, 1, chapter 1, verse, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is not the beginning of matter, energy, space, and time, like Hugh Ross says, it's the Big Bang. No. Rather, Genesis 1, 1 lacks the definite article, and it should therefore be translated, when God created the heavens and the earth. When God created the heavens of the earth. Translating it this way, uh, Michael Heiser, by the way, has a, a good article. I cite him in my blog post on this, uh, where he argues that this is a probably how Genesis 1-1 should be translated. Uh, translating it this way would turn Genesis 1-1 from an independent clause to a dependent clause. What's it dependent on? It's dependent on verse 2. Verse 2 then becomes a circumstantial clause. Verse 3 then becomes the main clause, meaning that verse 3 is God's first act of creation. You don't have God creating anything until verse 3. So what we have here is, When God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God. Wait a minute. Let me just let me just say something real quick about verse two. In verse two, we have very good reasons to believe that formless and void is not really a good translation. Um. Um, okay, so uh, I'm pulling up a chart here that uh, I got from John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. He has a whole chart showing um, <clears throat> uh, that uh, what the words in verse 2 are. The words in verse 2, which are translated as formless and void, in Hebrew it is tohu wabohu. Now, Dr. John Walton and Dr. David Sumora argue that Genesis 1-2 should be translated and the earth was an unproductive wasteland rather than the earth was formless and void. I agree with them. Why? Well, when you look at the various instances in which tohu occurs in the Bible, bohu, bohu never occurs by itself in the Bible. It never occurs without it being in conjunction with tohu. But when it when tohu occurs, 
with Bohu or without Bohu, it always refers to things that are non-functional, purpose, purposeless, wasteful, or broken. For example, Deuteronomy 32.10, uh, it, it, it Parallel to the wilderness, described by howling. 1 Samuel 12.21 describes idols who can accomplish nothing. Job 6.18 speaks of a wasteless, uh, a wasteland away from wadis where caravans perish for lack of water. Job 12.24 refers to a wandering in a trackless waste. Job 26.7 refers to what the north is stretched over. Uh, there's a... Isaiah chapter 45 verse 18 says, God did not bring it, the universe, into existence. Tohu, he didn't create it a wasteland, but formed it to be inhabited. So, there's so many instances here. Uh, The wilderness in Deuteronomy 32.10 wasn't shapeless. The idols mentioned in 1 Samuel 12:21 certainly had form and had various shapes, but the Bible says that idols are worthless and, can, and they can accomplish nothing, i.e. they are non-functional and without purpose. So since Tohu always carries the notion of purposelessness or non-functionality and it never refers to shapelessness, it's very likely that this is what Tohu means in Genesis 1-2 as well. When God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was an unproductive wasteland, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. When God showed up to create the heavens and the earth, the material was already present. The earth, the ocean, the deep. It was not, the world was not lacking material. It was lacking function. That's why it was. That's why it's described as tohu wabohu. Now, um, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was an unproductive wasteland. When God created the heavens and the earth, independent clause, the earth was an unproductive wasteland, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. Dependent clause. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. Main clause. uh, Dependent clause, uh, circumstantial clause, main clause. Now, what all of this implies is that the fact that one, material was already present, see, two, the material that was present is commonly understood in the ancient Near East to be a non-functional, chaotic condition, So that heavily implies that both the founding of the Babylonian city of Eridu and Genesis 1 are about functional origins, not material origins. And and three, the fact that Tohu Abohu refers to functionlessness, purposelessness, rather than shapelessness. It implies functional origins, not material origins. Besides the founding of Eridu, other ancient Near Eastern texts heavily emphasize functions over materials. The most blatant is the Egyptian papyrus insinger. The Egyptian papyrus insinger is from the Ptolemaic period. Although the manuscript comes from the first century after Christ, the material within the manuscript dates much earlier, uh, to either the second or third century before Christ, Approximating closely to the climax of this document, the document describes 18 lines of the creative handiwork of the god. Quote, He created light and darkness in which is every creature, 
He created the earth, begetting millions, swallowing them up and begetting again. He created day, month, and year through the commands of the Lord of commands. He created summer and winter through the rising and setting of Sothis. He created food before those who are alive, the wonder of the fields. He created the constellation of those that are in the sky, so that those on the earth should learn them. He created sweet water in it, in which all the lands desire. He created breath in the egg, though there is no access to it. He created birth in every womb from the semen which they receive. He created sinews and bones out of the same semen. He created going and coming in the whole earth throughout the trembling of the ground. He created sleep to end weariness, waking for looking after food. He created remedies to end illness, wine to end affliction. He created the dream to show the way to the dreamer in his blindness. He created life and death before him for the torment of the impious man. He created wealth for truthfulness, poverty for falsehood. He created work for the stupid man, food for the common man. He created the successions of generations so as to make them live. End quote. Here, the functional nature of the creation text is overwhelmingly evident. The God is said to have created summer and winter. Why? For the rising and setting of Sothis. Moreover, seasons such as summer and winter aren't material objects. He created food. Why? Well, the text says, for the sake of living creatures. He created the constellations. Why? So that they should learn, so that those on the earth should learn from the constellations. The god is said to have created remedies to end illness, wine to end affliction. It says he created death for the purpose of punishing the impious man. He created life and death before him for the torment of the impious man. Every line in this creation text is loaded with functional ontology. The creation of these things was functionally oriented towards a purpose. Summer and winter for the rising and setting of Sothis, food to nourish creatures, constellations so that earthlings could learn the messages of the stars, and so on and so forth. Notice that it begins with, he created light and darkness. Again, remember, the ancients did not know that light was composed of photons, so there's no creation of anything physical going on in the first line. Let's look at the Egyptian instruction of Merikari. It's also pretty clear in its functional ontology. This text says, Well tended is mankind, God's cattle. He made sky and earth for their sake. He made breath for their noses to live. They are his imagers who came from his body. He made for them plants and cattle, fowl and fish to feed them. When they weep, he hears. End quote. The instruction of Merikari, like the Egyptian papyrus Insinger, is not concerned with answering the question, what came into being? What order did everything come into being? How did everything come into being? What, and when did everything come into being? No, these texts aren't interested in answering those questions. Rather, these texts are, answer, are concerned with answering the question, why did our God make these things? 
And both the papyrus Insinger and the instruction of Mirakari answer those questions. So isn't it reasonable to think that Genesis 1 might be doing the same thing? Not, what order did Yahweh physically bring things into existence? How long ago did Yahweh create the world? When did, God, when did Yahweh uh, make this, these things, and how long did it take him? But rather, what, for what purpose did Yahweh make X, Y, and Z? Why did God create the sun, moon, and stars? Why did God create animals? Why did God create human beings, and so on? These do appear to be the questions that those in the ancient world were asking. So, let's go to Craig's uh, fourth objection. The fourth objection is, basically, how could things exist for eons without functioning? And I'm going to, to play uh, the clip of Craig giving his uh, objection now. But such a view is implausible, not to say ridiculous. It would require us to take as literally false all of the statements about the darkness, the primeval ocean, the emergence of the dry land, the earth's bringing forth vegetation and fruit trees, the waters bringing forth sea creatures, the earth's bringing forth animals, and God's making man. Notice that Walton can... Well, why? Why should we? Why should that entail that these statements in the Bible are false? I mean, Craig is here begging the question in favor of material creation. If the text meant to say that days 2, 3, and 5 are about ma the material creation of these entities, then of course the, co the functional view would contradict the text. But that is the very issue being debated. When Genesis 1.11 says, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so, is the text saying that God created the very first land plants for the very first time in a material ontology? Or is it saying that God is decreeing that the function of the land will be to produce food for the earth's inhabitants? Walton, have I, Walton and I have argued for the latter, but Craig merely assumes the former. Um, and, and, and Craig says, he goes on to say, Note, quote, notice that Walton cannot say that these things can't exist apart from an orderly system. For the moment that you say that, then the functional view collapses into the traditional view of a six-day creation, actually bringing these things into being over those six days, end quote. But why can't these things exist in a material sense apart from an ordered creation? Think about it. Isn't it possible for a house to exist in a material sense without it functioning as a home for a family? Isn't it possible for a college to exist in a material sense, libraries filled, curriculums made, teachers hired, uh, but not exist in the functional sense until, student, uh, until students show up and professors start lecturing? Craig seems to have a hard time breaking free from his cultural presupposition that existence 
equals material, and creation equals material. I see no reason to think that the stars, the plants, and the animals can't be existent in the material category of ontology, but non-existent in the functional category of ontology. Of course, it's important to understand what we mean by what, uh, what is the term functional. If you misunderstand the phrase, you'll misunderstand Walton's argument. And I have a, I have a quote that, from the transcript of this, uh, of this video, I wrote a blog post also responding to William Lane Craig, and I'm, I'm going to quote, rather than play another video, uh, a rather audio, another audio clip, I'm just going to quote from the text of the transcript here, uh, showing that Craig does misunderstand what is meant by function. William Lane Craig said, quote, Just how bizarre Walton's interpretation is becomes evident in his statement that the material creation of the biosphere may have gone on for eons prior to Genesis 1-1. And then at some point in the relatively recent past, there came a period of seven consecutive 24-hour days during which God specified the functions of everything existing at that time, end quote. Well, why is that bizarre? I, I, the only way I could see that that's bizarre is if Craig is assuming that creation is a material act and therefore ought to be observable. Now, just how bizarre Walton's interpretation is becomes evident in his statement that the material creation of the biosphere may have gone on for eons prior to Genesis 1-1. And then at some point in the relatively recent past, there came a period of seven consecutive 24-hour uh, days during which God specified the functions of everything existing at that time. Walton, notwithstanding, this is the farthest thing from a literal interpretation of the text that you can have, which he claims his view is. It implies that all of the descriptions of the world at the beginning of and during that relatively re sorry that that's that's the that's the clip i just quoted from in the transcript i didn't know that it was right there uh let me try to find the um the next objection here implies that all of the descriptions of the world at the beginning of and during that relatively recent week are literally false if you were to ask what would an eyewitness have seen um during that week Walton either begs off answering the question, or he admits that the answer is that the world before those seven days would have lacked only humanity in God's image and God's presence in his cosmic temple. In other words, everything looked exactly the same, except that the people who existed then had not yet been declared by God to function as his vice regents on earth, and God had not yet specified the cosmos to function as his temple. An eyewitness would not have observed, uh, and they did not observe on his view, any change whatsoever in the world uh, as a result of that creative week. So, uh, again, I don't 
see what the issue is supposed to be. If this is purely a temple inauguration of God specifying functions for things, why think that if someone jumped in a TARDIS or, or some other time machine, <laughs> pick your time machine, DeLorean, uh, and travel to the creation week, that, that he'd see anything spectacular happening on the planet. Uh, why think that? I mean, it, 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 why, do, why does that have to be something, why does what God does, the decreeing of everything's function during those seven days, why does that have to be observable if you were standing on the earth looking up at the sky at that time? I just, I, I don't, I don't understand why that bothers Craig. During, now, during the peer discussion period of William Lane Craig's Defenders class, one of his students makes a comment, and Craig responds by saying, quote, I think you're raising a really good point. It's kind of related to an earlier point, I think. It's very difficult to see how these functions could be assigned to things that were wholly non-functional. It didn't have, for example, working parts. I agree, I think that's right. The view is so bizarre that I sometimes wonder if I have misunderstood him. End quote. Yeah, I think Dr. Craig has definitely misunderstood Dr. Walton. As I said, as I as I said, to understand the argument for the functional origins view, you have to understand what the term function means. Craig what Craig indicates that he takes Walton to mean is that, for example, the sun is functioning because it's a burn a burning ball of gas, it's producing light and heat. Animals are functioning because they're running around eating and fighting and reproducing and so on. Uh, this is evident in his statement. It is difficult to see how these functions could be assigned to things wholly non-functional. It didn't have working parts. Of course, and, and and he's like, well, of course the sun and stars had all their working parts. Of course the animals had their working parts. Of course they were running around and eating and fighting and reproducing and so on. Uh, so, you know, so they were obviously functioning. Silly Walton. <laughs> but you know, that's just a, a, a total. He 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 has definitely misunderstood Walton. By function, we do not mean scientific function. What we mean is an anthropologically oriented function. That is to say, function in related to how things serve humanity. This is especially evident on day four of Genesis. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. Genesis chapter 1 verse 14. The purpose of the sun, moon, and stars are to mark time, seasons, days, and years. That is their function. They function for humanity. They help us, us human beings, keep track of signs, seasons, days, and years. John Walton explicitly stated this in The Lost World of Genesis 1. Walton wrote, and I quote, Again, we point out that these are not scientific functions. In this regard, it should be noted that the fourfold description of functions, signs, seasons, days, years, are pertinent only to humans. End quote. Function is defined as 
functioning for something, in this case, humans. Things cannot function for humans if there are no humans. So, therefore, humans must be material existent before they before things can function for humans. So it makes sense that the decreeing of functions doesn't occur until human beings be on, uh, come on the scene. Now, whether you believe that, that that was after a very short period of material creation, a very long billions of years, I mean, this interpretation of Genesis does not say. It is silent on how long it took God to materially make everything. But uh, certainly... The material manufacturing of human beings had to occur first. Otherwise, nothing could function for humans until humans came on the scene. So, it makes perfect sense to say that the sun did not exist in a material sense. I mean, in a, in a, in a functional sense. That the weather did not exist in a functional sense. That time did not exist in a functional sense. That land did not exist in a functional sense. And so on. Because human beings weren't around. So they weren't serving what they were designed to function for. Now when humans came on the scene, then God was like, this is going func- to function for humans this way. This is going to function for humans this way. The land, let the land produce vegetation. Let trees produce fruit according to its kind. Because we need, we need food. We need food for human beings. And it was so. Let there, let there be lights in the vault of the sky. Let, the, let them serve to mark day and... To separate day and night. Let them serve to mark sa- sacred times and days and years. Let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. Uh, so on and so forth. So it, it makes perfect sense. Now, let's go on to the final object. Yeah, I'm going on one hour here, so I am going to break up my response to William Lane Craig in two parts. I'm going to address his second video in next week's podcast episode. So, the fifth objection here is, but materials are mentioned. William Lane Craig makes reference to in, in this video, he makes reference to the chart that John Walton provides on page 42 of The Lost World of Genesis 1, and he shows a large number of places in the Old Testament where bara is used. Craig admits, he, Craig admits that some of the examples are indeed not material objects, such as Psalm 51.10, where the psalmist asks God to create a pure heart in him, north and south, in Psalm 89.12, etc., However, Craig says that these are the exceptions, not the rule, and he says, quote, The three objects of bara in Genesis 1, the heavens and the earth, the sea creatures, and man, are all clear uses of material objects, end quote. Now, in his response to William Lane Craig, Michael Jones, you know, Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy, I had him on this podcast in, uh, I think it was episode 11? Episode 11, and where we talked about evolution and its compatibility with the Bible. Uh, he, he's he got a lot of great videos, by the way. If you haven't subscribed to Inspiring Philosophy, you should do so. Great YouTuber. I'm behind on his videos. I, I want to I, I wanna just sit down at my computer, or maybe 
get my Nintendo Switch, pull up the YouTube app, and just binge his videos one day. Just spend a morning or an afternoon just binging his videos. Okay, I'm going off on a tangent. But anyway, uh, Michael Jones, he, he teamed up. He went on a Christian Idealism's uh, podcast, and he did his own response to William Lane Craig's uh, critique. And this is what he said. Quote, even Michael Heiser would agree with Walton that when it comes to man, it's verb-dominated. It's about man being called to image God. Craig is just sort of assuming that that's basically the object there. So I think he's missing the point here at what Walton is trying to get at. He sees in his English Bible materials. Okay, so if I see materials, then it's obviously got to be about manufacturing those materials. But he ignores that right after, it talks about how these things are going to function in their relation to their purpose, to borrow language from D.A. Klein's, end quote. Michael Heiser, who says regarding the syntax of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, quote, we think of imaging as a verb or function. That translation makes sense. We are created to image God, to be his imagers. It is what we are by definition. The image is not an ability we have, but a, but a status. We are God's representatives. End quote. When Heiser looks at the syntax there, he notices that it's very verb-dominated. God is calling man to be the image of God. It is not that God is materially manufacturing man as an image of himself. Okay, hold on. In my notes here, I noticed that, okay, I said that this was the final objection uh, in, in his video. It's not. It's the semi-final objection. Okay, uh, the, the, the final objection is, uh, Craig, hold on, Craig goes on to say, He says, quote, Apart from the possible case of Israel, none of the objects of bara in the Old Testament are existing things that are merely given a new function. Of the objects on the list, none of them, except perhaps Israel, is an already existing object which is then simply assigned a new function, end quote. And all I have to say in response to that is, What? <laughs> what? Uh, Craig goes on to say, Quote, Walton opines that the reason the functional interpretation of Genesis 1 is never considered by other scholars, itself a telling admission, is because they have been misled by cultural influences of our material culture, end quote. And what I have to say in response to that is, yeah, Craig, just like you, <laughs> just like you, that's, that's literally the whole point. And then Craig goes on to say, Such a claim impugns the credibility of scholars of the ancient Near East. I suspect that the reason no one else has so interpreted the text is because it is such an obvious misreading of the text. End quote. Now here I think Craig is being a, a little bit uh, uncharitable toward Walton. Walton is not saying, oh, scholars are just so dumb. They just can't, they just can't see in the text what I see. <laughs> he's not saying that or anything like that. Nor is he saying scholars are just so biased against the functional creation view. They just reject it no matter how no matter how strong the evidence is for it. No, he's not saying that either. Rather what Walton is saying 
is that the idea that Barah and Asa in Genesis 1 might not be referring to material creation, it never even occurs to scholars because we are just so entrenched in a culture that has a material ontology it just the idea just never even occurs to us we we just never we we never even think is this about material origins or functional origins let's look at the text to, to find out no it's just we automa- people scholars and lay people alike just automatically assume oh yeah this is about god materially manufacturing stuff that's what Walton is saying he's saying that we're just so entrenched by our our cultural the the cultural influences of our material cultures, we don't even think to ask the question, is this really what the text is about? And, yeah, I mean, I I had to wrestle with this idea for a good while before I could accept it, because I, I found it so bizarre and so difficult to think of existence and creation in ways that someone 4,000 years ago would. I am a product of my cognitive environment, so I had to, as Yoda would say, unlearn what I had learned. Now, earlier in this Defenders Class video, Craig admitted, he admitted, that there are exceptions where bara does not mean creation out of nothing. And I'm just like, that's the whole point. That's what Walton is saying. There are times bara could mean material creation. The problem is is that there is never a time it necessarily has to mean that. It's ambiguous. But there are times where it necessarily cannot mean material creation. For example, Psalm 51:10, Psalm 89:12, Isaiah 45:7, Isaiah 65:18. So Kenneth Matthews, it, Michael Jones, John Walton, Evan Minton, would say, okay, then it's not about material creation. It's about assigning functions. If you have places where it can't possibly mean material creation, and you never have a time where it has to mean material creation, and there's plenty of ambiguity in between, you're likely going to conclude that Genesis 1 is likely not material creation, especially when functions are explicitly stated day after day after day. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, i.e. the function of the land should be to produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, i.e. the function of the vegetation is to produce food, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, i.e., the function was assigned just as God commanded. And God saw that it was good. And, <laughs> and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 to 13. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it, and it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser night to govern the night. 
He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 to 19. Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 to 19. So, in conclusion... Okay, this is the end of part one of two of this uh, blog post, uh, I mean, uh, podcast response to William Lane Craig. Um, I was going to address both of his videos in one podcast episode, but seeing as that I've already gone over an hour and ten minutes, I'm just going to, uh, uh, I'm just going to devote another episode to responding to Craig's second video. So, but needless to say, I, I don't think that his objections are very good. I'm surprised at how weak his objections are. Um, thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. i got to give a shout-out to my Patreons, my patron Patreons, uh, Kevin Walker, David Parrish, Jordan Hampton, James Whitaker, Austin Long... You guys are awesome. Thank you for supporting this ministry because uh, I use I use twenty nine I use uh, I use your money to keep the website going because now I have an official paid host. I moved from cerebralfaith.blogspot.com to cerebralfaith.net. Uh, now I'm on a WordPress host now, so I can you know the website looks way more professional than that old Blogspot uh, format that I was on and it's all because of you guys. So thank you very much. And your, uh, your, your money goes to keep the website running. It goes to, for research materials and, and also all of your, all of your money that you, you donate goes to ministry stuff. I don't spend any of it on superfluous things. Uh, so thank you guys thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast next week I will continue responding to William Lane Craig and I'll see you next time peace out and God bless